All right, we can turn our Bibles to Revelation 17. Of Revelation 17, verses 14 through 18 this morning, we uh, were here last week, and in the same passage, didn't make it very far, uh, because there are some big words there in verse 14, that's really all the further that we made it. So last time, the title of the message was, The World is at War with God, which is very true, and we see here in the end of chapter 17, that this is going to culminate in a physical invasion and a, a, a coming together of the nations of the world against Christ and uh, in a physical way. Now the, the battle is kind of, uh, not even kind of, it is a spiritual battle that we are fighting, but with every passing day, it becomes more of a more of a physical uh, this battle becomes more and more physically manifested as as time passes. We see that happening uh, really all around us. Here in Revelation 17, we're getting a picture of the the end of the tribulation period, this seven year period of judgment that most of the book of Revelation is actually about. And this is uh, a truly fascinating uh, portion of God's Word as it is the, the revelation of a mystery that we are seeing here. A mystery that in the end there's going to be a city called Babylon that, we are, that the world is very familiar with and is essentially nothing today in today's world. Uh, but it is going to grow to prominence in such a way that it's going to essentially become the capital of this world government that is on its way uh, to power, even as we speak today. But the Bible promises us that God is going to be successful. Of course, God will win in the end, and that is what we are seeing here in Revelation 17, uh, verse 14 in particular. Book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of the tribulation, but we're getting a picture of Jesus Christ and His coming again to establish His rule and reign over this earth. Obviously very important for us to remember that so that we don't get bogged down in the details of the tribulation that we're learning about here, the details of this coming one world government. And we can see this from scripture and see what's going on in the world today uh, just this past week, as a matter of fact, uh, one of our articles from Sunday School that we didn't get to do today uh, that we'll save for next week, but I just can't resist. Uh, if, you did, if you paid any attention to the news this week, you may have heard Emmanuel Macron, the president, or I think he's the president of France is his title, uh, saying that the world needs one new system, essentially. Right now, we're in, the world is in a struggle between following the superpower of the U.S. or the superpower of China. We need to eliminate that. We just need one world system for everybody to follow. And if we would just do that, and probably in the back of his mind, he's thinking, if you would just make me the one in charge of it, everything will be great. All the world's problems will be solved. And so we, as Bible-believing Christians, see things like that, things like the coming together of world religions, the, the press to uh, one currency for the world, total control over everything that's bought and sold, and we see these things happening uh, in the world. Just as the Bible says they're going to happen, it's very easy for us to get pulled away and distracted into uh, an obsession with these things to the neglect of 
Jesus Christ and the truth of salvation through faith in Him. Uh, the fact that we need to be walking moment by moment, uh, trusting in the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers and living for the Lord. That is the main thing. When, and when we study these future events and we see them happening, that is intended to increase our faith in Christ, increase our uh, willingness to walk with Him day by day. It should not depress us. It should not cause us to uh, wallow in despair. It shouldn't cause us to just say, oh, forget it. Forget everything about the Lord. I just, you know, this whole world is just falling apart. No, well, that's actually the point. <laughs> the world is falling apart. Therefore, we should turn to God. So let's not get too too drawn away into the things that we're studying here. After all, this world system is going to be destroyed. And that is what we're learning about here in chapter 17 and 18, the ultimate destruction of this one world government that is going to, and the city in which it is headquartered, it's going to be destroyed. And it's all a part of God's plan. That's what we see in Revelation 17 and 18, specifically today, studying this futile war and getting some more details about how this is all going to play out. Important for us to remember chapter 17 and 18, all one unit, that chapter division is kind of getting in the way there. That's why I did the scripture reading this morning. As I did, I mean, obviously there are some, there are some paragraphs here, some different points that are trying to be made, but it's all talking about one topic, this city of Babylon and its future destruction. That what we've already learned about this future city, we see in verses 1 through 13, that it is a, a mystery that is being revealed. The, the title, the name of the city is Babylon. It is not mystery Babylon. It, it, it is a mystery that is being revealed. And the mystery is that there's coming a city by the name of Babylon that we're very familiar with from the earlier portions of the Bible. And what we find in those earlier portions of the Bible is exactly the same thing that's being said here. This city is the mother of harlots. This is where Babylon is the place on this planet where the world entered into a global pact against God. Before Babylon came along, there was sin in the world. Of course, there's been sin since the time of Adam. But this is the place, Babylon, Genesis chapter 11, is where the world came together to form its own system of government, its own way of thinking, its own religion that would be in opposition to God, the Bible, and people who want to follow God. That's why Babylon is very significant, and that is why primarily the world is headed right back to Babylon, the literal Babylon, because that is the place where rebellion against God originated. And that's why the city is called the mother of harlots here in verse 5. It is the, the very genesis, if you will, of rebellion against God on a global, total scale. And then we saw that these mountains, uh, and that is just for the alliteration there <laughs> in uh, understanding or compartmentalizing or outlining these verses, the mountains, uh, the heads on this beast that the harlot is riding on, the harlot is the city of Babylon, the beast is the end time one world uh, empire that is headed by the Antichrist, who's also called the beast. And it is a satanic kingdom. That's why Satan is pictured almost identically to this beast. The empire, the Antichrist, and Satan all have very similar descriptions because they're all 
That's what it is. It, that's what it is. It is a satanic kingdom headed by the satanically empowered man, the Antichrist. And this beast has seven heads, which are seven mountains, which are seven kings that are described, seven kingdoms. Uh, And there are essentially seven kingdoms we find in studying scripture that have directly to do with God, his people, the nation of Israel, and God's plan for the world. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and this end time empire that we are studying here. And so, and then that brought us to uh, verse 14, where we see that these kings, there are also 10 horns, verse 12, on this beast. And these 10 horns are representative of 10 kings in the future that are essentially going to have rule over this end times empire. And we saw that they are going to give their authority to the Antichrist. And these kings are going to wage war against the Lamb, verse 14. And, uh, but the Lamb is going to overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and Faithful. These ten kings in the end are going to uh, try to wage war against the Lord himself. All the nations of the world this is uh, representing. There are ten individual kings, so most people are uh, concluding that the world is going to be divided up into ten kingdoms. There's going to be ten people ruling over each one of these Kingdoms will have its own king, but it is encompassing the entire world. The entire world is coming against uh, the Lord here. And the Lord, I personally believe, is being represented by the the people of Israel, but we'll get into that uh, more as we go along. There are several places. Revelation 16 speaks of all the nations of the world. Revelation 19 describes all the nations of the world uh, coming in this battle. But the Lord is going to be victorious. He is the Lamb. We saw that all the way back in uh, Revelation 5. He's pictured as the Lamb who's slain, who takes the seal, the scroll, and begins to break the seals. He's the only one qualified to do it because he's the God-man. That's what we just celebrated in communion, the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He is the only one who is qualified to essentially judge the world because he's man and he's God at the same time in one uh, person. And he will overcome them. Nikaio is the, the Greek term there that we've spent a lot of time studying in in Revelation. One of the key concepts to take away from Revelation is this word overcome. It's very misunderstood. Uh, How do we overcome the world as believers? Is it pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and just promising to do our best for the Lord? Or is it trust in the one who overcame the world? Well, it's trust. That's what the whole uh, story of salvation is. Trust in the Lord. Trust in His provision. First John tells us that we overcome the world because we have faith in the one who overcame it for us. And here Jesus is literally, physically overcoming these satanic powers because He is the Lord of lords. And He is the King of Kings. And then we see that those who are with him are uh, called and chosen and faithful. We spent a lot of time, most of our time last week studying this, so we won't rehash the entire thing. If you'll remember, these are nouns that are being used here, uh, essentially being used as adjectives to describe the people. These aren't 
verbs, saying that they that they were uh, describing them as some sort of physical action by God to uh, that He is calling them or that He is choosing them. No, we saw that these are really all synonymous terms with believers, if you will remember. All believers are called and all the called are believers. Those are two subsets that are naming the same thing. There's no, uh, no exception there. Every time that that word is used to describe people, it is describing only believers. Believers are called because they are summoned and they responded positively. So nobody else could be referred to as called if they didn't respond positively. And we see that in every example of the use of the term. Same with the the word that we find here, chosen. Eklektos is the Greek term, sometimes translated as uh, elect, sometimes as chosen, uh, sometimes as choice. Choice would probably be a better word because after all, we saw last time that Jesus is referred to as the same word with the same term, eklektos, and Jesus most certainly as the Messiah. He's not, he's, he wasn't chosen among several who may have been qualified to be it and God decided to pick Jesus to be the one. No, that that is a heretical view of who Christ is. No, he, Jesus is choice. He is grade A. He is the one who can do it. Uh, he's better than all, than any other. It's not just that he is better than any other option. He is the option. He is the chosen one. First uh, Peter 2, 4 and 6. And just like the called uh, every person who's called is a believer and every person who's a believer is called. Every person in the Bible who is referred to as elect or chosen is a believer and every believer is elect or chosen or choice, grade A. And we're made that way by God because that's his plan of salvation. He chose, he determined in eternity past, that all those who would believe in him would be made choice, would be made the chosen, would be made elect, because he determined it to be that way. He's completely sovereign in salvation, and he offers it to any who would accept it. And when you accept it, you are welcomed into his family, and you are then, you can be referred to as elect or chosen because God elected or chose to make you that way if you would believe in him. And that's why this last term is included here in describing these people who are with the Lord. They are described as Faithful. We saw that these terms, the, the term called as a noun in the noun form is only used 10 times in the New Testament. The, the term eklektos in the noun form or, or being used as an adjective is used about 22 times. The word faithful to describe believers is used 67 times. The verb form 243 times. In the Bible, the overwhelming emphasis in all of these terms is faithful, that these people are believing, they are trusting in the Lord. That is their number one attribute. They are the ones who have believed in the Lord, and they will be with him when he comes again. And we'll get another chance to study this in Revelation 19. Uh, when we make it there. So that brings us to the expansive kingdom. These kings are going to wage war against the lamb. The lamb is going to be victorious. Believers are going to be with the Lord when he dispenses with these people. Revelation seventeen fifteen. we get a description of this coming kingdom. 
And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This is an expansive kingdom that is unprecedented in human history. Now, we, we uh, use terms like, oh, the Roman Empire uh, had command over the known world. And I don't even know where that comes from, actually, because, well, no, they didn't. <laughs> the world knew about uh, India and the world knew about places like China and these kinds of things. And well, Rome didn't control those areas. So they really didn't. And neither did the Greeks and neither did the Persians and neither did any of these other empires. This empire, however, will control the entire world. The harlot and the beast will have sway over the world according to these words. And this isn't a new concept here that's being revealed for the first time in Revelation. No, Daniel saw the same thing. Daniel 7.23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth and will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. That includes... Uh, North America and South America, which, yeah, the world didn't know about those. Uh, even when this was being written, people didn't, or I believe they did at one time, and that knowledge was kind of forgotten. Uh, and at any rate, this coming end times world empire is going to control the entirety of the globe. John says the same thing in Revelation 16, 13. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. Very important uh, word there, whole. To gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Because after all, uh, God isn't just reclaiming uh, sovereignty, if you will, for lack of a better term, or authority over the Western world or over Europe or over the old Roman Empire or something like that. No, he is reclaiming authority over the entirety of the earth. And so uh, this one coming, one world kingdom also has sway over the entire world. And so this unfortunately is disputed, this concept of this, what's being described here. Uh, people, for whatever reason, try to equivocate for God and come up with a different explanation, if you will. Well, uh, you know, we don't want to look like crazy people who think that the world is headed towards a one world empire. We don't want to be conspiracy theorists and think that the world is against God and wants to uh, control all people and these kinds of things and have total sway over the world. So we'll just come up with a concept that, oh, no, well, this is just describing Rome. And this is the Roman Empire and these kinds of ideas. Well, the fact of the matter is that, as we already said, Rome did not conquer the entire world. They did not have sway over every single person. The uh, Caesar of Rome did not have complete control over what every person, even in his own kingdom, bought and sold, let alone the entire world, as is described here in Revelation for us. And so it must be in the future and it must be exactly what it says, a kingdom that has control over the entire world. Now, we do believe that this uh, end time kingdom is some, sometimes referred to as a revived Roman empire. You'll hear that phraseology. And yeah, that's, it's accurate, but it's more than just that it's more than just a euro eurocentric or european kind of kingdom no it's a kingdom for the entire world and we we believe that it is a 
uh, has a revived Roman Empire kind of uh, entity to it because of what it says in Daniel 9 that this Antichrist, this one who is going to make a treaty with Israel, comes from the same group of people who destroy will destroy Israel in A.D. 70. That's essentially what uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is saying. And so this end-time Antichrist will come from the same group of people. The mystery that is being revealed in Revelation is that it's going to be oh so much more than just the Roman Empire. It's going to be a world empire. It's going to be headquartered in Babylon. Uh, for, for one reason, it's perfect symmetry for the Bible, for one thing. God creates the world. Man rebels against the, uh, God in the city of Babylon. God implements another city, Jerusalem, that is going to be his city with his people. Babylon fights against Jerusalem in many different forms throughout the history of the Bible. And in the end, Babylon will make a world kingdom and God will crush it and institute life the way that it was intended to be. And that's what's being described here. Not a destruction of the Roman Empire of the first century, but rather a destruction of the coming world kingdom that encompasses the entire world. And now the Reformed people uh, of a, uh, who are preterists, they believe that's a term that means that they believe that all the prophecies in the Bible have already been fulfilled. And so we need to, when we read the words on the page, we need to go back in history and figure out how this fits with historical events. And of course, there are varying degrees of preterists. Some actually think that there is literally no prophecy in the Bible. Uh, even Jesus coming again, oh, well, he did that. He came again in the smoke and the clouds of, uh, in AD 70. You just couldn't see him. But he was there when Jerusalem was destroyed. And those kinds of people are going to take these verses that are describing the, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Oh, that's just simply a description of the Jewish people being uh, throughout the world. See, we can even go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 5 and prove our point. On the day of Pentecost... After Jesus uh, sent the Holy Spirit to the world, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he sends the Holy Spirit. You'll remember uh, when the apostles are indwelt by the Spirit for the first time. It says in Acts 2, 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. See? That's what's being described here. Oh, but wait. (laughs) It says... There were our peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It is describing not just a subset of people within those various nations, but it is describing those particular people, all people. This kingdom has sway over all people on this planet. That's what is represented in, if you remember the... the vision that John is seeing is a woman, harlot, riding on a beast, sitting on many waters. The waters are representative of the fact that this is a worldwide kingdom. Clearly, this is figurative language. A lot of this is figurative language. We get into trouble when we try to make figurative language be literal, like looking for a city that has seven hills in it. Uh, and saying, oh, well, Babylon doesn't have seven hills, but Rome does, so this must, so when it says Babylon, it actually means Rome. That is bad interpretation. And people have these kinds of views about not just, not just this, this is just an easy example to point out, but people have views about the world in general, and then try to twist scripture to match their view of the world. That is a desperate, desperate 
mistake to make. We, as a, I think I said this to Suzanne earlier this week, we need to come up with a new term for dispensationalists. Uh, as, as a person who allows the Bible to inform every area of our thinking and what we see going on in the world, uh, i.e. a classical dispensationalist, we develop our system of thought based on what the Bible says, not the other way around. We don't look around, see how the world is, and then make the Bible fit with uh, our worldview. That's what the folks are doing who... Uh, uh, we won't even go into what they're doing today. You can read about the, uh, uh, I think he was an uh, Episcopal priest, had to say about Jesus this past week in a talk, just complete blasphemy. Taking his worldview and twisting scripture into what his worldview is rather than exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to do with the Bible. And doesn't Satan do that throughout the scriptures. Every time Satan quotes the Bible, and he does quote the Bible quite often when he is pictured talking, he twists it exactly the opposite of what it actually means. And sometimes it it seems like that should just be obvious when that happens, but it's it's actually not. And so this idea of allowing the Bible to form all of our thinking and how we interact with the world goes so far beyond the book of Revelation and the end times and a pre-tribulation rapture and what are the exact events that are going to take place in the tribulation. It's so much more than that. It is, it forms every area of thought, every area of actions. If we are doing this the way that it should be done. For example, well, I'll put our quote up there first. We have this idea of figurative language that's being used here. David L. Cooper, kind of his famous quote about how we should be interpreting the Bible. When the plain sense of Scripture, David L. Cooper says, makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. So when we have here in Revelation 17 a woman riding on a seven-headed beast with ten horns holding a cup in her hand and dressed in a certain way and she's sitting on many waters, should we take that literally like but there's this evil woman riding around on a seven-headed beast that we have to be watching out for and hoping she doesn't know. Obviously, it's figurative language because the, the plain sense of these words doesn't make common sense. So we need to investigate and do some uh, understand the figurative language. Study other passages of the Bible to come up with our... Uh, understanding. Allow the author to interpret the meaning. Allow, in this case, allow John and his writing to interpret the meaning for you. And if you can't find the answers there, then you start expanding out to other passages to find the meaning. And so, God wants us to do this not just in prophecy, but in every portion of the Bible. So, for example, did uh, the world evolve or is there a creator as is described in the scriptures? How many genders are there? Here's one that gets right to home. Are there two? Are you either a male or a female unless you have some sort of genetic deformity and something went wrong in, in the process of you developing in your mother's womb or something along those lines, some kind of mutation? Or are there a myriad of them? Can you be anything? Can you be a dog, a cat, a, a man, a female? Do you get to choose which one of these you are? Or is that something that is determined 
for you according to the Scriptures. Here's another one. Is marriage between one man and one woman for life? Or is it between one man and another man? Or one man and three women? Or two women and two dogs? Or can we just make it be whatever we want? Or does the Bible inform our decision-making in that area? Am I saved by faith or am I saved by works? Oh, there's, another, there's one that kind of uh, hits home in an area that doesn't typically get thought of in dispensational thought, but it actually is. That, that, is, that is the very heart of literal interpretation, consistent, literal interpretation of the scriptures. Am I saved by faith or is it something that I do? Is it some kind of work that I do? Can I know that I'm saved? Can I have the complete assurance of my salvation? What does the Bible say? Is there, is there some kind of ambiguity there? Should I have the assurance of my salvation or should I be depending on how I feel that day? How, I, how I'm doing, obeying that day. The Bible tells me I can have 100% assurance of my salvation because it isn't dependent upon me. It's dependent upon the one that I'm trusting in, Christ. Can I do whatever I want? Can I live however I want? Or am I accountable as a Christian to a holy God who is in heaven, who is omniscient and omnipotent and has rule and reign over my life? There's a dispensational uh, problem for you there, or there is a dispensational application for you. How I live my life, I determine that through a consistent, literal interpretation of the Bible. That's dispensationalism. It's so much more than a pre-tribulation rapture and what the ten horns on the beast mean and these kinds of things. This affects every area of our life. It should affect the church and what the church does, what the church is about. The new church, I'm not even sure what it's being called anymore. It, it used to be called the emergent church like 10 or 15 years ago. That was the cool term. Uh, Neo-evangelicalism, I don't know uh, what, what the term of it is, but nevertheless, whatever it is, The Bible tells us what the church should be about, what the church is. And if we substitute anything for what the Bible says, we're missing the mark. We're not doing, uh, quote unquote, doing church the way that we should. And the new, the new church, the neo-evangelicalism, the emergent church of 10 years ago, left the Bible behind. That's why if you go, I invite you to go to uh, investigate churches. I do it all the time. Anytime there's a, a new church comes up and I, oh, I've never heard of that one. Let's go to their website. Let's, uh, what do they believe? Because you certainly can't tell from the name, name of the church anymore. It's the Bridge Church or whatever we used to come up with all these crazy names. Uh, And it seems like that's what people are doing today. The name of the church says absolutely nothing about what the church actually believes. So you have to go to their website to find out what they believe. And good luck. (laughs) Good luck finding a statement of faith that is of any kind of depth there. And if you do, well, you might be on the right track to finding a decent church because the the neo-evangelical church has left the Bible. Oh no, doctrine divides. We don't want to, we don't want to divide people. We certainly don't want to talk about revelation, the future, a pre-tribulation rapture, all that stuff just gets people fired up and, and people just want to leave. And so we need to kind of reimagine the church. So what do we want the church to be? Well, let's just make it all about community and coming together and, uh, and these kinds of things instead of what the Bible says. So our main thing is just gathering together and loving one another and all of these kinds of concepts 
rather than what the Bible says. That's a big mistake. And so in new churches, uh, for lack of a better term, what you're going to have are kind of talks about the Bible rather than the teaching of the Bible. You get a, you get a weekly pep talk. And I'll go out there and make a great community. These kinds of, these kinds of things. Rather than the truth of the Scriptures informing our minds, informing our thinking, conforming us to the image of Christ and understanding what is going on in this world. Because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide asunder soul and spirit. It reveals the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we disregard the Scriptures to our own detriment. This is what the church needs to be about, teaching the word, applying it to every area of our, of our lives, every area of our thinking, every area of our actions. And the only real way to do that is to allow the words on the page to speak for themselves. And so when we do that, in this case, we see that, we are, that the world is facing this expansive kingdom that is going to dominate the entire world. And these ten kings, in the end, are going to execute God's purpose, showing his perfect uh, control over this situation, his perfect sovereignty over this, that he is going to allow the future 10 kings to execute his purpose for him. Notice what it says there in verse 16 of Revelation 17. And the 10 horns which you saw in the beast, those will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now this is kind of, kind of interesting uh, little verse here that is easy to skip over this uh, 16 and 17, these two verses actually, that actually describe the ten kings as being the ones that destroy the harlot. And uh, theologians have had a kind of a difficult time coming up with the answer to how all of this is going to play out precisely. Because if you'll remember, back in Revelation 16, this is part of a description of the seventh bowl that is being continued here it would seem. And so uh, how I thought God was the one who is destroying uh, the forces of evil at the end. And now it seems like they're kind of, they're doing it to themselves. How is all of this going to work out? Well, good question. And that's where uh, sometimes we have to uh, just allow for the fact that we don't know exactly how everything is going to uh, play out in the end. And there are, some, there are some good theories that I have here on the, on the screen for us that are worthy of, of understanding, but it's also important to keep in mind that we, may, we do not have all of the answers to lay out a perfect scenario how all of these things are going to come to their conclusion. And that's, personally, I think that's a good thing because it allows us or it provides for us a, a motivation to continue to study God's Word and to try to understand these things uh, better and better rather than just having it, oh, it's completely settled, this, 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 and this is going to happen and just memorize that and buy my book and it'll all be good because then you'll have all the answers. 
And that's not exactly uh, the way it is. Now, the first problem that we come to when we see this, if you have a King James uh, version in verse 16, it probably says something along the lines of, and the ten horns which you saw were upon the beast instead of and the beast, as is rendered there in the NASB. The the King James is giving the impression that the ten uh, horns are on the beast and they're the ones doing this. Uh, The NASB, I think, is a little bit, is more accurate in saying and the beast. So it's the ten kings plus the Antichrist are the ones who are Uh, bringing the harlot to her demise in this case. And so that uh, brings us to these various theories. John Wolverd has one, uh, and he is of the opinion that this one world religion, he sees the harlot as being the one representative of kind of the one world uh, religion in the end, but it's also an economic power, but he sees this one world religion as being destroyed at the midpoint of the tribulation. So Revelation 17 happens at some point before the midpoint of the tribulation, and then Revelation 18 is later, and that's at the end. Well, there's kind of a problem with that, we, as we'll see in verse 18, the woman whom you saw is the great city. So cities are, in this case, it's only going to be destroyed one time. Uh, and so there's kind of a problem with separating it into two different uh, entities. You come up with two destructions of Babylon and that, that doesn't fit. Uh, with what is being described. 17 and 18 are all one unit of Scripture, and there's going to be uh, one destruction of the city. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has another uh, theory in this regard, and his, you can see that in footsteps of the Messiah, and he has come up with a scenario where this is describing uh, what's found in Daniel chapter 11, if you're familiar with that, and the Antichrist uh, is kind of reacting to uh, bad news that he heard, and it's the destruction of Jerusalem. These other 10 kings have kind of rebelled against the Antichrist, And they are the ones who destroy Babylon and then the Antichrist uh, does battle with them and these kinds of things. It's rather complicated. But uh, the problem with that is that it would seem he is basing this uh, interpretation off the King James Version or the authorized version where the, uh, the horns are upon the beasts. And so he, he's not seeing the Antichrist as being a, playing a role in this. But it says the ten horns and the beast. The ten horns and the Antichrist are participating in that. So it kind of uh, is a problem for the Antichrist being the one who is reacting here. Revelation 17 and 18 are all one unit, one destruction of Babylon. Now, it is true that at the midpoint of the tribulation, the world is going to turn to worship of the Antichrist. He's going to set himself up in the temple. This is one of our uh, three main events that we know for sure when and where they're going to happen. The first seal begins the tribulation. That's the coming of the Antichrist into the world in this peace treaty from Daniel 9. The midpoint of the tribulation is the Antichrist setting himself up to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. The end of the tribulation is the coming again of Christ. And and how to fit the rest of these events into that is uh, up to debate, if you will. It's not perfectly delineated in the scriptures how all of this is is going to play out. Uh, We know that it's not just the destruction of 
the end times one world religion because the city is the the harlot is not just religion the harlot is the city it is babylon that has a religious aspect and an economic aspect as well but it is obvious that these 10 kings execute god's uh purpose in this the 10 kings will give their power to the Antichrist. We see that, Revelation 17, 13. These have one purpose. These 10 kings have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. That most likely is going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. Revelation 13, uh, verses 3 through 5 I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months, three and a half years, second half of the tribulation given to the beast, to the Antichrist. That certainly happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. I don't personally see how Babylon is going to be destroyed at the midpoint, but and yet carry on from there. Perhaps it will be. Uh, but in conjunction with this, we have to understand it's the seventh bowl that is being described. So there's some, there's some ambiguity there. There's some things that need to be perfectly figured out. The seventh bowl is the end. That's when Christ comes again. So everything doesn't match up exactly perfectly the way that we might want it to in our minds. But God's purpose, nevertheless, is the destruction of, of Babylon, the complete, utter destruction of Babylon, so much so that it will not ever be occupied again. That is Jeremiah chapter 50. We see that, the word which the Lord spoke concerning Babylon. And to make it more specific, the land of the Chaldeans through Jeremiah the prophet. That's, you can't come away saying that this means Rome what it's saying here, Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, to Jeremiah, declare and proclaim among the nations, proclaim it and lift up a a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north. It will make her land an object of horror and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They have gone away. goes on to say that it will never be inhabited again. Well, people still do live there. People lived in Babylon for a thousand years, uh, at least after, uh, for example, the Persians came there that we learn about in Daniel taking it over. Well, there's a a Babylonian Talmud. Jews lived in Babylon for at least a thousand years after uh, Christ even. So this has not been fulfilled. So it must be in the future. Revelation 16, 19, the great city was split into three parts and the city cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. That happens at the seventh bowl judgment in the end. So what what do we know about this for sure? That God is sovereign over this destruction of Babylon. It would appear that the 10 kings, something is going to happen to Uh, motivate them to destroy Babylon, but it's all for God's purpose because he is the one who's sovereign over the nations for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22, 28 
tells us. So the ten horns and the beast will hate the harlot, the city of Babylon. They're going to destroy it. This is executing God's purpose. This destruction and the harlot is a city. Verse 18, the woman whom you saw is the great city. Already referred to earlier, Revelation 17, 5, Babylon the Great. Revelation 16 and verse 19, Babylon the Great was remembered before God. It is in this context, the great city is clearly Babylon, and it's going to reign over the kings of the earth. It is the end times headquarters of this coming one world kingdom, Antichrist empire. And God's will is going to be done over this city. And this ought to encourage us as we see the world uh, rushing headlong into the the things that are described here, uh, the world, uh, the church included, unfortunately, forsaking the scriptures, forsaking doctrine, uh, and rushing into uh, a religion that's more supposedly loving and accepting and all of these kinds of things. Well, how much more loving and accepting do you get than dying for someone's sins? What's the most loving thing you can do for a person who is headed to an eternity of conscious torment, uh, separated from holy God? It's not to tell them that, that they're okay right where they are. It's to tell them that they need Jesus Christ. They need salvation that is found through faith in him. You don't need a religion. You don't need a list of do's and don'ts and make sure you keep it perfectly. You need Christ. You need faith in what he has done for us. That's, that is loving and kind and accepting, accepting the fact that Christ died for all people. What should we say to these things when we see the world going off in this way? Paul gives us a good example of that. I read this last time also, but it's very appropriate to conclude with Again, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, this King of kings and Lord of lords is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, anything else that these people can dream up to do against us, can that possibly separate us from the love of Christ? No, of course of course not. Paul says he is convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So be encouraged, chosen one. Be encouraged, called one. Be encouraged, faithful one. God has overcome this world. And one day in the future, he is going to execute his purpose in this world, and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his shed blood for our sins. We thank you that you have determined in eternity past that all those who would trust in you will have the hope of eternal life. And we also thank you for not just leaving us as orphans here in this world, but you have not only given us your word, but you've also given us your spirit to live within us. I just pray that each one of us who has trusted in you would walk moment by moment uh, in faith in you and in fellowship with the Holy Spirit who indwells us and guide us in this dark world. Help us to be a light for you and salt in this world as we go about our 
daily business. We just pray for your will to be done and your protection over us as we live for you each moment of the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.